Welcome to the HT Cambridge podcast. For more information, see our website, htcambridge.org.uk. The reading is chapter 12, verses 37 to 50, and that's on page 1080 in the Pew Bibles. That's John, chapter 12, starting at verse 37. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Well, thank you, Edwina, for that reading. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to be back. Uh, one of the, uh, the odd things about being a visiting preacher or an occasional preacher at a church is that you're never quite sure which of your sermons will be the last one. Um, there's, if you're the vicar, you can pretty much guarantee that if you have an off day that you will be back next week or sometime later. Whereas as a visiting speaker, you're never quite sure if that next invitation is going to be offered. So it's, um, it's very nice to be here. Um, and, and hopefully I'll see you again sometime, but we'll, um, we'll see how we go. So uh, we're continuing, for those of you um, who are regular, you will know this, but if you're visiting this morning, we are continuing a series in John's Gospel, and this week we're dealing with this remarkable passage in John chapter 12. 
The title for today's sermon is The Mystery of Unbelief. And just sort of for clarification, I, I am going to talk about the mystery of unbelief, but I'm going to talk about that quite near the end of the sermon. So please don't spend the next 10 minutes wondering when that's going to appear. It, it will appear, but it will appear a little bit later. Um, now, um, this really isn't the easiest of Bible passages to understand, so I would encourage you, if you have a pew Bible in front of you, to keep that open, and then you can follow along, and we can all sort of dip in and out of it uh, as the sermon continues. Uh, but before I go any further, I think it would probably be a good thing if I prayed. So let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we pray that this morning we would hear Jesus' words to us, that we would hear the words that you have given him to speak to us. And Lord, by your Spirit, that these words would take root in our lives and change us to be more like your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, uh, I'm not sure how your year has been going so far, but one of the highlights of my year so far, Saturday night, I, I realise in saying that that, that that does sort of tell you a little bit about my life, if, if the highlights is a, one of the highlights is a BBC miniseries. But anyway, uh, that's, that's just the way it is, and I, I have to live with that. So uh, I, did, I have really enjoyed the series. I haven't actually read War and Peace, the book. I have a shelf at home with a number, number of large Russian novels, and there are books of each of those books that, that show me just how far I got. So I got to about page 110 in Crime and Punishment. I only managed to get to about page 80 of The Idiot. Uh, I did read The Brothers Karamazov, but that took a couple of years, uh, and I, I don't really have that time anymore. So it was great to see War and Peace in a sort of six-hour chunk on TV. Uh, now, as you, if, you've, if you've seen the, uh, the series, even if you haven't, the very first shot of the whole series is a shot of Napoleon sort of sitting there silently on his horse, looking out into Russia, which he is about to invade and, uh, in his mind, conquer. Uh, and one of the great things about the, the novel and indeed the series is that, is that all of the little dramas of the people that we see on the way through are set within this huge drama of the Napoleonic Wars, uh, this, this sort of life and death struggle, this, this sort of gargantuan battle between empires is going on in the background. Uh, and within that... There's the little dramas of, of the lives of the characters uh, that Tolstoy paints for us. Uh, and presumably this big picture is why uh, Tolstoy called the novel War and Peace, because actually it's War and Peace is the really big theme. I guess he could have called it Pierre and Natasha Get Married, uh, but that doesn't have qu quite the same grandeur to it. Uh, so anyway, he's gone with War and Peace, and I think we can see why. Now, I think uh, one of the things that Tolstoy was doing uh, that is going to be important for us as we look at this passage in John is that Tolstoy is very concerned to understand how the lives of individual people, small, obscure, ordinary folk like you and me, uh, relate to the big picture. And in his life, he, he was living in a world where the aristocracy were viewed as the, as the real uh, playmakers of the day. They were the ones who, it was thought, uh, ran the country and... and um, arranged history and made great things. And over his life, Tolstoy changed his mind on that, and actually he began to think that, that it was the ordinary life, the small decisions, the, um, the intimate circumstances of ordinary people, that they were the things that really mattered in life. And so in War and Peace, what he's doing is he's trying to connect, he shows us how he connects these little dramas with the really big sweep of human history. 
And that, I think, is exactly what's going on in our reading from John today, in John 12. Now, you'll know right at the start of John's Gospel, there's the big scene. There's the equivalent of Napoleon sitting on his horse, surveying everything. Uh, In John, it's not Napoleon, it's this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So right from the start of John's Gospel, this is the vision he has. It's as big a vision as you can possibly have uh, of everything, because it starts with God, and it starts with uh, uh, who God is and what God does. So all of the drama in John's Gospel as it plays out is set in this enormous uh, vista of who God is and what God is doing. Everything that Jesus does is set in this scope. Every person he meets, all the healings he performs, the signs he performs, the arguments he has, his friendships, his whole life, his death and his resurrection. Everything is played out in front of this grand picture. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, you'll know if you've been watching War and Peace or if you've even read the book uh, that some of the most moving and challenging episodes in the story come when the, the little details, the individual lives, connect with the big picture. There was one that's particularly startling when Pierre, who is an incredibly wealthy and slightly eccentric uh, count who's inherited a phenomenal amount of money uh, and lives a, a great life of luxury, and, and his journey in the novel is to, is to try and connect with a truer version of reality than the one that wealth brings. And there's a point where he decides that he's watched his country folk go off to war, and he wants to know what that's like. So he joins them, and he sort of rides his horse into the middle of a battle. He goes to where the Russians are going to fight the French at Boris. He has no coming. He has no experience at all of what war is like. Uh, And he pitches in with the battle, he tries to help, and he's completely overwhelmed by the carnage and the suffering and the horror of it all. He's never experienced anything like it. And actually, it it brings home to him just how empty his life had been, um, how luxurious and how how unconnected he was in his wealth from, from the lives of the ordinary people who live around him. Now... Our reading this morning in John's Gospel is, is, is a similar place. It's one of those passages in the Gospel where John deliberately connects Jesus' life and what he's doing to this big picture of who God is and what God is up to. Uh, and John does this for us in two different ways. And first, the first way is through the connection with the prophet Isaiah. When Jesus, the, the opening verse of today's reading uh, gives a little bit of background as to the the drama of Jesus' life. Jesus has been performing signs. He's been doing amazing things, uh, and still people don't believe in him. And this reminds John initially of Isaiah's ministry many centuries before, because Isaiah, like Jesus, came bringing God's word and God's message to the people. Uh, And people didn't believe Isaiah either. They ignored what God was saying through him, And it was as if, uh, Isaiah writes, as if God had hardened their hearts to hear his message. And this then leads to the really crucial statement that John makes about Isaiah. And it's in verse 41 there. Isaiah said such things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Now that's an extraordinary thing to say. How on earth 
did Isaiah see Jesus' glory? How on earth did a prophet living several hundred years before Christ, how can John say that uh, that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory? Well, John is making quite a creative leap here in his reading of Scripture and the Old Testament. Because John, as you may well do, remembers Isaiah's calling. And in Isaiah 6, we have a picture of Isaiah's calling by God to be a prophet. Uh, And here's what Isaiah 6, how Isaiah 6 describes that. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So this gives us the the background for John's creative leap. He knows that Isaiah has, in his vision, seen God. But then John takes the next logical step. Because if Isaiah has seen God, Isaiah has actually seen Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So in John's logic, if, if Isaiah has seen God, then Isaiah has seen Jesus. So that's the first way that John connects this, this little drama of Jesus' life to the big picture of who God is and what God is doing. But there's a second way that John uh, connects it for us as well in the passage, and this is through the words of Jesus himself. Let's listen again to Jesus' words, and this is in verse 44 and 45. Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. So this is the second connection. In Jesus' own words, he says, actually, if you can see me, you can see God. If you, if you hear me, you are hearing the words that the Father has given to me. If you trust in me, you are trusting in God. There's that connection between who Jesus is, this one person who lives and walks and heals and cries and acts. There's a connection between who he is and who God is in the background. Now, normally at this point in a sermon, preachers wheel out an illustration, uh, which is basically a way of of finding something that's remotely familiar to us uh, to help us understand something which is frankly unfamiliar and quite difficult. Uh, And sadly, when it comes to this sort of language in John, there just are no illustrations that work for this. There is nothing else on earth that I can point you to or that I can look at which shows me God in quite the way that Jesus does. This is the only example we have. Christ is the only one we can look at in whom we can say these things with confidence. So in the end, what what we end up doing is just repeating them and hoping that we can think about them some more. Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. And so as we read this passage from John, we're faced with these two extraordinary claims. John claims that when Isaiah saw God in his vision, he was actually seeing Jesus. And then Jesus claims that whoever sees him sees the one who sent him, God the Father. These are the claims that lie at the heart of John's gospel. They're absolutely central to Jesus' ministry. And they're potentially life-changing for anyone who knows Jesus. Anyone who witnesses his life, who looks at him, who spends time with him, 
Uh, in doing that, you're connecting yourself with God. Surely then, whoever sees Jesus, if they really do see God, then all of those people must have had their lives completely transformed. They must have lived differently after that moment. Surely they would have taken that chance to connect themselves in Christ to who God is and what God was doing. But sadly, as we see in the passage, that isn't actually the case. John points out there are three different responses to Jesus that we see. There are three different groups of people who, who clearly somehow see Jesus, but they don't see God at work in him. They don't make that connection readily between who Jesus is and who God is. The first group is mentioned in verse 37, and we've talked about them briefly already. These are the people who have seen Jesus uh, act, they've seen all that he does, and yet they still don't believe. The second group we find in verse 42. These are people who have seen Jesus, and they do believe, but they're reluctant to admit their faith openly. They're fearful about admitting that they really believe or trust in him. And there's a third group which we can find in Jesus' own words, and this is in verse 47. These are the people who hear what Jesus has to say, but do not obey those words. And I'd like to suggest that in each of these groups, we see something of what we could call the mystery of unbelief. Because we might look at that first group and we think, how could you experience Jesus and not believe? How could you watch him raise Lazarus and not believe? How could you be at the wedding when the water was turned into wine and not believe? How? What a mystery that would be. But perhaps with the second group, we could, we could ask the same question. How could you believe in Jesus and yet still be fearful to admit it? If you've seen that Jesus is the one who he says he is, if you encounter Jesus and recognize that in Jesus God is working and present and active, if, G if you look at Jesus, if you really look at him and then see the Father, how could that make you fearful? How could you make that first step and not the second step? But then even the third group we might ask, how could you hear Jesus and not obey? If this is really the word, the one who was with God in the beginning, the one who was God, surely if that person asks you to do something, you would do it. How could you not obey if you heard his words? And I suspect these things are the mysteries of unbelief. How do we explain these responses? Now, often the church has got itself in a bit of a pickle um, over, over how we approach these sorts of questions because we're all very good at looking at other people and saying, well, ha well wh why can't you believe? Um, and so there's, there's an awful lot of theological ink has been spilt on, on the first group, for instance, the people who encounter Christ, who seem to see him, but yet who do not believe. Uh, and, and there's the, the, the words that we have from Isaiah uh, that says it's as if God hardened their hearts. And that has led the church into all sorts of uh, roundabout ways of trying to explain to itself and to everyone else how is it that some people look at Jesus and believe and other people look at Jesus and don't believe. Uh, and I don't actually want to go into that discussion today because I think it's a dis it tends for us it's an easy discussion to have because it becomes a discussion about other people. Why can they not believe? It's a mystery that they don't believe. And I think for us, 
What's more important is, is to ask the question of ourselves. What is stopping us from believing? Why, why do I not believe? So I think we have an opportunity today to connect our lives through this reading to Jesus. And in connecting our little lives and our dramas to Jesus, we can connect who we are and what we do into the great purposes of God. Because as we come to know Jesus, as we trust Jesus and live for him, we are living for the one who is with God, the one who is God. And so I think we need to make this personal for us. And for some of us, and I include me in this, uh, making it personal could also make it uncomfortable. Because I think if we're honest, the chances are we will find ourselves in one of these three groups. Some of us here may have been watching Jesus for a while. We may have read the Gospels. You may have been invited here by a friend. Uh, you may have just wandered in because you thought, I'd like to know more about this. And you're looking. And for you, you're just looking. You haven't made a step to belief yet. Some of us will believe, but we'll be struggling to be open about owning that belief maybe in our workplace, maybe with our families or our friends. We can see there's something in Jesus, but actually to fully own that and fully express it, at the moment, that seems a step too far. And then perhaps there's some of us, and I, I, I oh, thankfully because I'm the preacher, um, this is the category that I um, find myself in, where I can confidently say I believe, um, that I hear God's word, but yet I don't do it all the time. And that's my mystery of unbelief. If I really take this seriously, if I actually believe, if I'm prepared to own my faith publicly, why on earth is it that I don't do what he asks? I used to think when I was younger that there would come a point where I would have learned how to just naturally do what he asked. Um, uh, and I've realized I haven't hit that point yet. Uh, and maybe I won't hit it. I don't know. But that's part of the mystery that I struggle with. How can I take this so seriously and yet just bluntly not do what he asks? So, for each of us, perhaps, we have our own little version of the mystery of unbelief that we're wrestling with. And it might well take different forms. But I think there is still the opportunity, I want to give us all the opportunity today to connect our little dramas of unbelief, our little faith, our questioning, to the big drama of what God is doing because it's not just that in the passage we see these three groups. Actually, Jesus has words to speak to each of these groups. And as we close, I'd like to look carefully at what Jesus says. And hopefully for each of us, there's, there's word and truth and encouragement there to apply to our lives. Because actually, it's not that we connect ourselves to Christ and what he is doing. It's that he connects us. Christ longs to, 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 to hold our lives and to draw us into what he is doing. This is not something that we can achieve on our own. We need to be invited and called and enabled and inspired and grasped in order for our lives to be connected to Christ and God and what they are doing. So let's have a look at what words might be spoken to these groups. And perhaps to the first group, if you're here and you do not believe and, and you're comfortable with that, you might feel that what I have said to you is a judgment on you or that I'm somehow getting at you. And I really, I don't want you to hear that. And the main reason I don't want you to hear that is because of what Jesus says in verse 47. 
He says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And this is true for all of us. Our primary need is to be saved. Wherever we are, whatever we are doing, wherever we find ourselves in our journey of faith, we always need to be saved. And thankfully, Christ has come as a saviour to save us. But perhaps for some of us who, who can believe but who struggle with the fear of owning that, what might it do to us or to our families if we were to really trust and openly acknowledge in all areas of our life who Christ is and what his reign might be? Then there's words for us too. And here, the, light, the, the verse is verse 46, where Jesus says, I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. And I think it's not too great a step to say that for those in the passage who believed in Jesus but who were still fearful, there were elements of darkness in their lives or around about them that caused the fear. And yet if we, if we truly experience Christ as light, if we come to know him as the light that banishes the darkness, then whatever that darkness is for us, Whatever that fear might be, we can trust that Christ has come to remove it, to bring light to those places where there is darkness in our lives and therefore fear. And then perhaps for the third group, and this is the one that speaks most closely to me, to those of us who hear Jesus' words and yet struggle to keep them, Jesus says, I know that the Father's command leads to eternal life. That's in verse 50. The Father's command leads to eternal life. Christ is not asking us to do things simply for the fun of it or out of a whim. The words of Jesus are to be obeyed because they are the words that lead to eternal life, that show us the way to live now, which truly connects our day-to-day -day lives with the eternal purposes of God and the great plans of God. And perhaps it, here's the... Here's the place where we can see that wherever we are, whatever our circumstances, however small or ordinary we may feel ourselves, that actually to follow Christ's commands for our lives enables us to live in such a way that we become in harmony with the God who created the world and who created us. So that in our smallest actions and our most ordinary relationships, there is a way in which we can live which connects us, which gives our lives a significance beyond what we would naturally deserve because actually we're living in a way that is aligned with the purposes of the creator of the whole world, the one who was in the beginning. And as we follow Christ's commands, we can live in such a way that we connect with that one and that we can have a relationship with him. Let us pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you gave your words to Jesus Christ to speak to us. And we pray now that by your Spirit you would open our hearts so that we might hear the word that you have for us. We pray, Lord, we would hear your words, that you did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. We pray that we would hear your words that you have come 
into the world as a light so that no one who believes in you should stay in darkness. And we pray, Lord, that we would trust you and trust your word, that the words you speak, your Father's command, Lord, we pray that we would know that these are the words that lead to eternal life. And Lord, give us the grace and strength to obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.